For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross. It's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma makes U.S. history in the commutation of more than 500 inmates, with the majority of them seeing freedom on Monday. Cameras and reporters caught hugs and tears as the nonviolent inmates left prisons thanks to the retroactivity of State Question 780. Ryan, your thoughts on this mass release? I mean, I think that this is representative of the sea change that's happening in Oklahoma politics around criminal justice reform. I mean, going back to 2016, the people spoke loud and clear that they were ready for the state to take bold action around sentencing. And this is an extension of State Question 780. And uh, what we're seeing now is not just Democrats, not just Republicans, but uh, everyone coming together. And, and I heard a, a radio podcast recently on the media. They talked about this being a trans political, a transpartisan issue where you have, it's not bipartisan because there are different goals on each side, mm-hmm. but there's still a common interest and folks are coming together to, to bring about this real change. This is a huge day. And, you know, uh, uh, floor leader, John Eccles before the pardon and parole board or right after the pardon and parole board, made their uh, commutation recommendation based on this accelerated docket. He said uh, some really powerful words. He said, you know, these are real people. These are moms and dads, husbands, uh, wives, sisters, and brothers. And these are, you know, these aren't just numbers. I and mean, when we talk about these huge numbers and historic perspective, but they're real people. Uh, and I would just follow up on that and saying that the, there's a real tragedy that that's behind this that should motivate us to move forward, and that is that the criminal justice system has robbed these folks of some precious days. I mean, they've missed birthdays at funerals. They missed hanging out on the couch watching Netflix with the people that they love. You know, that to me is the real crime here. This is justice delayed, and there's a lot of justice that we still got to do. Neva? Well, I think it is important, and, and certainly when you look at it from a national perspective, we got a lot of attention. I mean, the governor was front and center on this, and uh, um, it was it was the result of years of discussion on reforms. I mean, we can go all the way back to, I think, 2008, when the Oklahoma Academy yeah. kind of made this mm-hmm. the centerpiece uh, that they talked about. Many of the things that they uh, addressed in that conversation are still ongoing important factors in uh, post-release of, of, of these folks in terms of making them successful and productive citizens of society. We have to make sure that there are the, the wraparound services, there are the, uh, uh, the folks engaged and involved in all sectors, in the nonprofit community, in churches and businesses across the board to make sure that this is not just a, uh, out the door and done, but that, that we have something that can truly be a success story and a model. And, you know, people kind of want to boil it down to just, you know, kind of the numbers. But when you think about it, I mean, the average age of these inmates was uh, just under 40 years old. Most of them had been incarcerated for at least three years, uh, taking off, uh, uh, being released at least a year plus early. And to the taxpayers, I mean, when we look at the significance of making these shifts in terms of incarceration, it's it, it, it was estimated that it was about $12 million yeah. that uh, taxpayers would be saved on the full, um, if, if they had actually... Uh, been in for their full sentence time. So a lot of things to be talked about, a lot of important uh, consequences that still are in front of us in terms of making sure that we, in fact, do have these people be successful. Uh, meanwhile, it's been highlighted in most media about places like TEAM that mm-hmm. are transitionary, transitional 
places that can help these inmates who are going from the jail to back into society. Well, and you know, let's let's not forget the the 400, nearly 500 folks that went out on this accelerated docket. Hopefully, hundreds more coming on future commutation dockets. I mean, possibly up to 900, a thousand folks that could ultimately be released as as a result of House Bill 1269. Um, when they get out, uh, even though they that their time in prison is behind them, you know, the criminal justice system sets people up to fail. And uh, when they get out, the deck is stacked against them. It's going to be, there's a lot of really, when you're removed from your house and your community and your family and your job for a year, I mean, even for a week or a weekend, uh, I mean, things can get really hard for you. And so there are a lot of uh, really difficult steps that even a person that doesn't have uh, a criminal conviction behind them uh, is going to find difficult, but these folks are going to be in a really tough spot. And so whether it's team, nonprofits, the state of Oklahoma, Neva's right. We've really got to step up and give people the kind of services that they need so that we, they don't fail and go back to prison. I, I do think that Governor Stitt and other folks have seen a real clear message. You know, the, the positive media around the nation on this, I think that that spurs future reforms. Permitless carry has been the law of the land for a week now, and concerns are growing from some. Oklahoma City Police Chief Wade Gorley worries about people carrying guns without licenses or training. Meanwhile, citizens are watching Second Amendment advocates walk around in public places. Neva, what is your message to people regarding these concerns? Well, I think I think there are concerns being expressed, but I think the takeaway is even in the even in the instance with Chief Gorley, he said his department fully supports uh, those that are want, wanting to exercise their Second Amendment rights. Believes that the details uh, uh, will iron themselves out over time, which has historically been the case with any of these laws once they're once they're on the books and in effect. And so this level of uncertainty, I think, is just something that's being high and somewhat manifested by this conversation uh, being generated largely by the media, more than just regular folks out there. Uh, I think that business owners, I mean, we've seen examples where restaurants have decided to, you know, it's no longer posting, you know, we that uh, a ban on not bringing any weapons in, but maybe not bringing long, you know, long guns in, rifles and, and that sort of thing. So I think that there are provisions in place, as we've talked about before, where, you know, individual business owners others can make those determinations but I think the long and the short of it is uh, we've not seen any great uh, uh, you know just uprising in the aftermath other than these isolated conversations which which are legitimate and continue to be warranted and ongoing Ryan and just you know pet peeve of mine I've talked about it down here before we talk about Second Amendment rights and we talk about statutory rights this is a statutory right if if people really believed that they had a Second Amendment right to walk around with a firearm without any permit, without any regulations at all, any kind of firearm, then they don't need a statute in the state of Oklahoma that enables them to do that. You know, this is less about your Second Amendment right because the Second Amendment, regardless of how you read it, talks about something being well regulated. So this is a statutory grant of authority by the legislature and the governor to the people of Oklahoma. And that grant of power has consequences. I mean, it's emboldened people like Timothy Harper, the guy that showed up in all of these viral videos uh, with with weapon with a with a long rifle with an assault weapon walking into restaurants. You know, he's going around uh, you know a community of color using racially charged language on his social media account, inviting racially charged responses from people on his social media account, talking about uh, black people being. Uh, basically target practice, you know, saying that if you feel threatened at all, you know, you get to shoot them and, uh, you know, it's dehumanizing people. And so, you know, when, it, when laws like this pass, what it does is it emboldens people like him to go into communities and create real, a real sense of fear. Um, uh, and now we also have business owners that are on the front lines. And so you, if you're a business owner, sure, you can say, I don't want a long rifle in my business. 
but it shouldn't be on a waitress uh, to have to go up to somebody carrying an assault uh, an assault rifle and say, you're not welcome here. I mean, that's a potentially dangerous, terrifying situation to be in, especially if you're making minimum wage. And let's, but let's face it. I mean, the one video out of four million Oklahomans, I mean, we're, we're talking disproportionate uh, uh, here in terms of, uh, of, of what's going on. I think most law-abiding citizens, whether they carry or don't carry, whether they own a firearm or don't own a firearm, uh, understand what has taken, taken place with permitless carry. I mean, and, and yes, it does, I think, still involve Second Amendment when you talk about just the whole issue of guns. I mean, that's, the, that's what citizens in this country, I mean, equate it to, right or wrong. I mean, you know, we can get into the technicalities of, of statutes and laws, but I think in Oklahoma we're not going to see, uh, other than isolated, unfortunate, regrettable examples like the one you just mentioned, Ryan, and with this video, an isolated case which, frankly, does not need attention, and if it got less attention, uh, it would it would be uh, uh, far better for everyone than to try to focus, uh, focus attention on it like I think we've already seen in the media in the past week. But as a member of the media, you, I can't ignore that. That's that's a that is somebody walking into a public place with a gun. Absolutely, but we also have to take it in context of you didn't have a hundred of those incidents or a thousand of those incidents. You had one, and I think that's the some sometimes I think that's what gets lost in the conversation is that this is isolated, not just becoming a rampant example of what's going on in seventy-seven counties across Oklahoma. And I, I think that there's a real fear if you're a family and you're out of the restaurant, and in particular if you're an African American family out of the restaurant. And you have this man who has been, I mean, that's, that's, that's really what we've got here is we've taken a guy who's used racist language uh, and is, you know, despite what he's trying to say, is, is obviously trying to threaten communities of color and create fear uh, and, and, uh, and um, concern in those communities walking into a restaurant. And there's really no legal recourse other than to have the business owner of the restaurant go up and say, you need to leave. I mean, that's, that's a really strange situation to be in uh, where that kind of activity is legal. The state Supreme Court hears arguments over a controversial alcohol distribution law. The state wants justices to overturn a lower court's decision declaring Senate Bill 608 unconstitutional. The bill forces the top 25 manufacturers to make their brands available to all distributors. But opponents say it goes against a state question passed by voters. Ryan, do you think the Supreme Court will uphold this ruling? No, I think, yeah, I think the Supreme Court will uphold the district court ruling, ruling that this new law is unconstitutional. The, the ballot measure that opened up the ability for, uh, for different brands to choose their distributors, that amended the state constitution. If you want to change that, you have to go back to the, to the people, whether the legislature wants to put that question out there or whether there's an initiative petition to put that question on the ballot. That's what you have to do to amend the state constitution. You can't do it through statute. You know, there were the, the oral arguments were uh, a little uh, interesting. You know, there was a there's a uh, justice uh, Coggers seemed to say that there was uh, a potential confusion among the ballot title. Maybe people didn't understand that the ballot title uh, was sufficient for people to understand that it that it included this distribution language in there and that it, you know most voters understood it to be that you could go buy wine in a grocery store. But Justice Gurridge noted that the attorney general was the one that wrote that ballot title. Uh, and so now the, and, and also, you know, the attorney general's involved in these arguments now on the other side, defending the state statute. And so I think that, um, I think that the only way 
that this ballot title or that this uh, statute is upheld as constitutional would be if the justices went back in time and, uh, and uh, dealt with the validity of the ballot title that the people of Oklahoma approved. That, to me, seems unprecedented <laughs> and something that most uh, justices probably will not want to yes, do. Yes, time travel is usually not precedented. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is not. Well, the, uh, some of the comments by uh, the justices were interesting. In fact, even uh, Chief Justice Gurich, I mean, one of the, one of the uh, kind of avenues she explored is uh, whether going from forced sale to free competition is really what what it's all about, you know, in terms of uh, here in Oklahoma. And I think even uh, the attorney uh, that argued against um, uh, the uh, Senate Bill 608, uh, Robert McCampbell, uh, he made the point that, that that this is not a monopoly in the marketplace, that there's 11 wholesalers. There's been kind of this focused attention on two, but there are really 11. And he, he equated it to the duopolies in the given market, such as using Coca Cola and Pepsi, and Pepsi, mm-hmm. and uh, or in food products where oftentimes you have uh, you have a monopoly, uh, you have uh, sole distributors. So I think it is going to be uh, the interesting thing we'll see we'll see is whether the court really kind of delves into it's about kind of this argument. It it would almost uh, look to be public policy, you know, versus yeah. versus versus the Constitution and what the statute, is the statute constitutional based upon, you know, the reading of that versus public policy. And the courts, I mean, uh, the justices heretofore have not been uh, willing to delve into, uh, you know, from the legislative arena, delve into what the policy mistakes or pluses and minuses are. And I think uh, asking for this ex- expedited uh, um, uh, solution to this, we'll see the court didn't really indicate, as I understand understand, you know, we don't have much uh, indication, but uh, I would hope that it would would get resolved. Now, does does that resolution open the door to more legislation and more, you know, legislative battles in the coming sessions? Possibly. So uh, it's a very complex issue, and I think uh, a fascinating one. We'll just have to see what the court says. Neven, I think you're exactly right. It was was interesting to hear the court have this conversation about public policy and whether this was a good policy or a bad policy, because to me, that seems to be a secondary question to whether whether or not this violates the, the the very explicit command of the state constitution now that says that distributors get that uh, brands get to pick and choose the distributors they're not forced to go with uh, with any one distributor or to sell to the you know to any particular distributors in the state you know this gives them that freedom now whether that's a good policy or not is really up to the legislature and in this case it was up to the people of Oklahoma and you know to and maybe that's because the the court really saw this as you know more of a cut and dry case of like this is in clear conflict with the constitution but we got to talk about something so let's well, talk and, about and the it policy seemed, and it seemed like there were some other things that were kind of infused into the into the dialogue and the and, and the back and forth during the during the hearing for instance uh, talking about unlawful restraint of trade and some things that really hadn't come up uh, before and so there are some there are some legal issues uh, the question is uh, you know are they going to really factor in this based upon how both sides have uh, presented their case. Yeah, and if, if you're going to attack the, the state constitution, the, really your only way to do that is to amend the constitution or to demonstrate that the Oklahoma constitution is in violation of the federal constitution. Right. And if you can't do one of those two things, then I think that you're you're in a you're you're not going to win. Tough I mean, there's, I mean <laughs> there's maybe two or three dissents here, but I think ultimately this is declared unconstitutional. Yeah. Two state senators are crafting legislation <clears throat> to name a portion of Route 66 after President Trump. Republicans Nathan Dom of Broken Arrow and Marty Quinn of Claremore say the 13-mile section would run from Miami to Ottawa County. 
Now, since news of this broke, officials with Route 66 and even uh, Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell have panned the idea. Neva, do you think a Trump highway will happen in Oklahoma? It may happen, but I think it won't happen on Route 66. And I think what you just said, Michael, I mean, Lieutenant Governor Pinnell immediately uh, took to uh, Twitter and and basically said he'd spoken with Senator Dom after he'd heard about this uh, and that uh, he indicated that the the senator was willing to look at other highways uh, that they and and really what uh, what the lieutenant governor what was doing was weighing in with the Route 66 Association and saying that this is, you know, if anything should happen, this shouldn't be the case, that you take historic Route 66 and you add confusion by slicing out a layer of this four miles that they want and, and naming it after any president. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's not the issue of the naming. It's, I think in this instance, it's it's the case of uh, they rolled something out and now they're, they've got great pushback based upon the, the four mile stretch that they were asking. Uh, advocating for the name to be uh, changed. Right. I think you got two legislators here that are just desperate for the president to tweet about them. It's like, please, please, <laughs> President Trump, tweet about me. Look, look, I'm going to name a highway after you. I don't He's, think that's happened yet, yeah, though. That not I, yet, <laughs> not yet. I mean, you know, but he hasn't seen it. I mean, it, it may be like the only stretch of highway in the in the nation where he might not get booed. I mean, <laughs> or, or if he was, at least, uh, you know, these two legislators would be out there clapping for him. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Oklahoma, we, we've, we've got, a, you know, all of the Republican presidents are represented. I don't know that we've got any Democratic presidents represented on our highways, uh, and, you know, certainly not uh, Clinton, Carter, or Obama. Uh, and so what I think that, you know, this you know, may very well happen. Unfortunately, um, I, only, I only wish that we needed a random piece of highway to remember this presidency. Uh, we're, you know, it's a, if it's a memorial, if it's a memorial highway, we're going to remember this. You know, you know, the, the corrupt awfulness of this presidency is going to you know, last for generations of Oklahomans. It's not going to be just when you drive down a, a random stretch of highway, whether it's on a turnpike or an interstate or whatever it is, or Route 66, and say, oh, yeah, President Trump. Now, we're going to remember this for good or bad and make you know, almost <laughs> entirely bad, all in, entirely bad. <laughs> A former broadcast television reporter plans to take on Senator Jim Inhofe in his re-election bid next year. 30-year-old Abby Broyles, who worked for Oklahoma City's News Channel 4, says she is running as a Democrat against the 84-year-old four-term, four-term senator. Ryan, should Inhofe be concerned? Yeah, I think that he should. I think that you've got a candidate that has uh, good name recognition. I think that the political dynamics of Oklahoma have changed significantly since his last major challenger in Andrew Rice and then before that, Governor David Walters. Um, you know, what we saw earlier this week in, in, in states like Kentucky where there was an upset or at least a, you know, a likely upset where the Republican governor, incumbent governor, was beat by his Democratic challenger in a state that uh, Trump carried by 30 points. And, you know, around the nation, when we saw that election night, it's kind of a preview of 2020. We're getting, we're continuing to see, in particular, in suburban areas, uh, Repub- you know, people that used to be uh, really uh, solid Republican voters are trending towards Democratic voters. I think that's going to help out folks like uh, Congresswoman Kendra Horn here in the Fifth District to hang on to that seat. And so, I mean, there's there's a I mean, there's a real chance there. The other thing that could happen is uh, Senator Inhofe has made himself such a national target. He's been such an outspoken issue on things like as uh, a climate change denier. Uh, on, on immigration and any number of things. He's become a lightning rod. And so if I think that there were a sense that there was a credible candidate in Oklahoma that could get any traction at all, it could attract a lot of outside money into the state, whether that's independent expenditures or direct contributions to a candidate. And, you know, at this stage, walking in with big name recognition and, and you know, not a lot of ton of apparent negative baggage, 
you know, I think that she's a, uh, you know, a good candidate at this spot. Neva. Uh, you know, I think if I would question big name recognition. She has some na- name recognition. She's the fifth Democrat uh, to say that, uh, that they're running. You have, uh, uh, you have uh, someone who's a, uh, uh, a professor, Dylan Billings. You have Tyler Daughtery, a software developer. Uh, you have Bevan Rogers, a millennial industrialist by description. You have Mike Workman, who's run before. He was the, the 2016 uh, Democratic candidate against the uh, James Langford got 25% of the vote in that state statewide election. So you have folks, and you've had some others that have that have uh, put their name on uh, kind of in the mix, and now taking it back out. So you know, I think it's another name. It's another name that uh, has to prove that they can mount a credible campaign. Which means, can you raise significant money? I mean, can you build a statewide organization? Can you be mm-hmm. competitive? I think that's a big. I think that's a big reach. And let's face it. I mean, Jim Inhofe, like him or not, I mean, in 2014. He got 68% of the vote. Uh, in 2008, he got 57% in the most competitive race uh, that, that, that uh, you know, that he had at the Andrew time. Rice. So, yes. Mm-hmm. And so you have someone who is uh, well-respected, someone who has a strong political base in the state, someone who will have all the money that they need uh, uh, to run the campaign. And in a year when uh, Republicans historically do very well in presidential, uh, in presidential mm-hmm. elections. So 2020 sets up for a very good uh, year for uh, Republicans to uh, retain the Senate seat. And I think uh, it's going to take a lot more than just someone who's a former TV TV, uh, reporter to think that that's going to be enough to uh, launch them into a a real serious campaign. Well, let me ask you then for people, not just Jim Inhofe, obviously Jim Inhofe's been around since 94, so it's going to be a lot harder to to take him on. But uh, what we saw, you're right, in in Virginia, in Kentucky, uh, what they're calling the blue wave. Should Uh, And the last time there was that, it was in 2006 when Democrats took over all statewide offices. Should Republicans be concerned, even if not not just Jim Inhofe, but any Republican? I I think every person that's going to have their name on the ballot is, should always be concerned. I don't think there's any gimmies. I don't think there's anything that should take be taken for granted in any election. That being said, I think you still, when you look at some of these upsets around the country, you have to step back and look at the race itself, whether they were competitive dollar-wise, they were competitive organization-wise. I mean, in some cases where you had an embattled incumbent who was highly unpopular, a uh, very different situation than what we're seeing in, in, in uh, Oklahoma. Jim Inhofe may have his detractors, but he has broad, strong support among Oklahomans, and the polls have continued to validate that uh, year in and year out. Well, and I think that the blue wave is more likely to deliver, you know, Kendra Horn a re-election victory. I think the blue wave is more likely to make the first district competitive. I think that it's more likely to uh, lead to some increased representation among Democrats in the state legislature. A statewide race for a Democrat in in a race like this that would be a national race. It would be a referendum on national politics, whether Inhofe or anybody else makes it that way. That's what it's going to be. And in large part, it'll be a referendum on President Trump, who still enjoys some decent numbers in Oklahoma. And so it's going to be an uphill battle for any Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate or any statewide office to win right now. But I think that it's more competitive than it has been in a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we live in this uh, political atmosphere where kind of anything can happen. I mean, you, you know, it was a year ago this week uh, that Kendra Horn won the 5th District and unseated, unseated an incumbent uh, Republican member of Congress. And, you know, most people never would have thought that that was going to happen, and it did. And I think that we're at a point now where both from a, because these races are nationalized, there are a lot of groups that would want to see Jim Inhofe 
beaten as a statement, as a political statement. And so if you get a candidate that's got traction, organization, uh, and can raise some money, it could be more competitive than, than it's been in a very long time. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.